Um, This morning I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. If there is one word that could describe God, it would be love. If there is one defining action that represents God, it could be explained in one word, love. If there is one quality or attribute that sets God apart, it is love. If God had a surname, it would be love. If there was a reality TV show about God, it would be called Master Love. The reason you and I are sitting in this building today can be summed up in one word, love. Unlike any other quality, characteristic or attribute, the one thing that God is as opposed to what God does is love. In 1 John 4, we are told that God is love. Not just God loves, but that in fact God is love. Loving is in God's very DNA. Our church's mission is to be a loving church. So with that in mind, what a great opportunity for us to explore this renowned and beautiful passage found in 1 Corinthians 13. Now this passage of scripture, many of us would be more familiar with hearing it read in the context of a wedding. However, I think a wedding service was one of the furthest things from Paul's mind when he wrote these words. It's not to say that it's inappropriate for this passage to be read at a wedding. Certainly it has wonderful application 
for a married couple. But when Paul wrote the letter to Corinth, he was writing to the church as a whole. Like all passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13 has a context. And the better we understand the context, the better we'll be able to understand the chapter. And perhaps in doing so, we may, might be able to discover afresh what this means for us as God's people today. So let me take you on a very short journey of the context and situation of 1 Corinthians. Corinth's physical location made it a place of trade and influence. Corinth is located at the foot of a narrow neck of land separating northern from southern Arche, which today is modern Greece. This was a very strategic location as it has two ports. Consequently, the trade that occurred brought with it wealth, corruption and many travellers. It exuded a life and certain energy that is to be expected in a busy township. Corinth was what is referred to as a Greco-Roman city. It had originally been inhabited, inhabited by ancient Greeks until 146 BC when it was conquered and destroyed by the Romans. The Romans, however, re-founded Corinth as a Roman colony city in 44 BC and it became the capital of the Roman province of Arche in 27 BC. The first inhabitants of the new city were Romans, but Greeks returned after a time, and people of other races also settled into this important wealthy city. After a while, it had a dualistic nature. It operated under Roman law, and many of the buildings were Roman. However, the dominant thought and culture of the place was Greek. With its mixed population, Corinth was a home to a large variety of religions. It was very multicultural and multi-ethnic. It became known as the city of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, fertility and raw sexuality. Sex was everywhere and prostitution was in abundance. The Christians in Corinth were struggling with their environment. Surrounded by corruption and every conceivable sin, they felt pressure to adapt. The church was being undermined by immorality and spiritual immaturity. Paul had established the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. We can read about this in Acts chapter 18. But the majority of the church was Gentile with some Jews who were more the exception. And you could say that Paul was a little bit like an itinerant pastor. His mission and ministry was to preach good news, plant new churches, and set them up so he could continue moving on to preach the gospel and establish more and more churches. As the founding pastor of many churches, Paul would often write to a church to address a specific issue that they were struggling with or to simply offer some guidance, a rebuke, or to affirm them. In other cases, he would write in response to them regarding a letter they had written to him. Perhaps the church was facing a moral crisis. The church was faced with a, a leadership situation that they needed some guidance on. And so they would write to their founding pastor to ask him for some guidance. And much of the New Testament letters that we have from Paul are actually Paul's responses to these situations. The letter we know as 1 Corinthians is is a bit of a mix. It's a mix of Paul responding to certain situations that were most alarming and cause for great concern. Uh, 
but it was also a letter that outlined Christian conduct, theological issues and, and the like. Thus, the letter can actually be broken up quite easily into two sections. Chapters 1 to 6 deal with the disunity in the church, the areas that were causing division. And then from chapter 7 onwards, he takes up matters that they had raised with him, which is why so much of Corinthians from chapter 7 onwards is evidenced by this word or this use of now about. There's a repetition of those words because Paul is responding to what they had written to him about. Chapter 13 falls into this section where Paul is responding to the questions the Corinthians had posed to him. And to drill down a little further, chapters 12 to 14 are dealing specifically with spiritual gifts and their function within the body of Christ. Whilst chapter 13 is often isolated and pulled out of this context, it's so important for us to read it back into that context and to understand Paul's very intentional placement of where it is. Chapter 12 deals with spiritual gifts, and in particular, the range of different gifts given to the body. Paul makes it clear that all gifts are given for the edification of the church. Chapter 14, to start with, specifically addresses the gift of prophecy and tongues. The Corinthians most likely had what the commentators refer to as an over-realized eschatology, What this means is that they presumed that the coming of the Holy Spirit had delivered them into a new era where they were experiencing God's complete fulfilment of heavenly things. This is why they prized the gift of tongues so highly, because they understood it as the heavenly language. And they saw it as a tangible sign of their supreme spirituality. Paul argues that of all the gifts, the one they ought to desire most was not tongues, but rather prophecy, simply because prophecy is given as a gift to edify the whole body, the whole church. He then lays down something of a gathered worship manual, 101, outlining how worship ought to occur when fellow believers gather together to celebrate and worship God. And it is into this space in the middle of spiritual gifts and gathered worship instructions that Paul places 1 Corinthians 13, this great chapter of love. Now, personally, I find all of that context really helpful in understanding why Paul wrote what he wrote, where he wrote. And it illuminates a number of the illustrations and examples that Paul draws on throughout this letter. Chapter 13 itself can be neatly broken into three different sections. One to three, the necessity of love. Four to seven, the character of love. And eight to 13, the permanence of love. Let's take a look at these one by one. The necessity of love. Verses one to three paint a picture of what we might consider to be a spiritual super person. Someone who speaks the language of men, persuasive rhetoric, and of angels. This person has the gift of prophecy, the ability to fathom all mysteries and knowledge. This person possesses a faith that is so incredible and robust that it can, in fact, move mountains. And this person is completely selfless, giving everything away to the poor, even when it places their very life on the line. This all sounds amazing, so mature, so developed. 
and so worthy of praise. But three times there is a but. But have not love, but have not love, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul is very straightforward here. You can be the most spiritually gifted person alive, but unless you have love, it is meaningless. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that without love, any spiritual gift one has is meaningless. Faith alone is meaningless. Doing good alone is meaningless. In fact, one could derive that life itself is entirely meaningless without love. What this says is that the true measure of spirituality is not in how intimate one is with God in their prayer and praise, not in how much faith and knowledge and understanding one has of God, not in how much encouragement or excitation one can give, not in how selfless one is, but in how loving one is, in how much love a person has for God and for his fellow brother and sister. Sometimes I think our human perception of what we consider to be truly spiritual is a far cry from what God considers true spirituality. Ultimately, love of other people is the measure of a person's spirituality. In fact, without love, the whole point of what it means to be a follower of Christ is lost. Let's keep moving. The character of love. Paul then discusses the character of love. The description of love that follows in verses 4 to 7 was especially adapted to the Corinthian situation. This poetic and beloved description of love flies in the face of what our world considers love to be. Love is not something you feel. Love is something you do. Love is known by the way it acts and refrains from acting. It is a verb. Now, the kind of love that Paul speaks of here is agape love. Agape love is a love that is shown toward us by God. It is a love that is given to us completely without merit. And it is a love that we can only ever hope to extend to others with the indwelling help of the Holy Spirit. Consistently, this is Paul's primary term, agape love, that he uses for his desire of Christian love toward one another. That, in fact, this is how we ought to love one another, with the same kind of love that God has shown to us. With a list of then 15 verbs, Paul proceeds to describe the nature, the character and the shape of Christian love. This list is basically in three parts. It begins with two very positive uh, expressions, patience and kindness. These are followed by eight verbs expressing what love is not or does not do. And finally, the end is, a, is balanced by a positive counterpart. Patience and kindness represent love's necessity, necessary passive and active response towards others. One portrays the ability to forbear frustration. 
The King James Version is hard to improve on. It says, suffereth long. The second portrays an active sense of goodness being demonstrated. And these twin qualities brilliantly describe God's love for us. On the one hand, God's patience is clearly demonstrated in Scripture with his ability to withhold divine judgment toward human sinfulness and rebellion. On the other hand, his kindness is found in his endless expressions and acts of mercy. The obvious implication, of course, is that this is how people are to act towards one another. These two positive expressions are then followed up by seven verbs that indicate how love does not behave. The first can be directly correlated between the behaviour that was being demonstrated by the Corinthians. Love does not envy. This is clearly an issue that the Corinthians were dealing with and grappling with, with a lot of division that they were experiencing. Love does not boast. Uh, Boasting suggests self-centred actions and motives. It suggests an excessive desire to brag about oneself. Love is not proud. This verb literally means to be puffed up, carrying with it overtones of arrogance. Paul uses this word um, exclusively for the Corinthians. Love is not rude. This verb means to behave shamefully or disgracefully. For Paul, Christian love cares far too much to speak shamefully or disgracefully about one another. Love is not self-seeking. In some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. Laying down of self, of selfish desires and needs for the benefit of another. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs, just as God in Christ does not reckon our sins against us. So the one who does not bear a grudge with the person who has wronged them, knowing that ultimately God will judge and bring divine justice. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. Not only does love not delight in evil, but it actively rejoices in the truth. It refuses to take pleasure or delight in anything that is evil from a global perspective, such as war or oppression, right down to gossip that makes fun of someone else. The final collection of verbs draws this section to a close, in essence, by saying that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that love cannot face. Love is resilient and it can endure all things. It can do so because love never causes or never ceases to have faith and it never loses hope. It is often pointed out that in this paragraph, Paul seems to best capture the life and ministry of Jesus. We could very easily replace the word love with Jesus and it would give us a very accurate picture of what Jesus is like. We ought to not stop there, however. The list of love's qualities is not just designed for our admiration, not just designed to be hung on a nice picture on the wall, but they're given for our instruction. A helpful and, to be honest, a very sobering way of applying this to our own lives is to substitute our own names in those areas where it says love and then to seek God's repentance seek God's forgiveness, seek God's mercy and seek God's help to help us grow in those areas where we are lacking. 
This is not an exercise to become discouraged or frustrated at our own lack of moral or spiritual growth, but rather an exercise to be done prayerfully, recognising that we can only be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. The final concluding part of 1 Corinthians 13 deals with the permanence of love. And Paul now turns to contrast love with prophecy, tongues and knowledge. His primary goal is to enlighten the Corinthians with the fact that the gifts are only for the present. They will ultimately pass away. Unlike love, they will no longer be necessary in our heavenly dwelling. You see, the Corinthians were deluded about their spiritual gifts. These gifts are necessary for a time, but not forever. They are like childhood in comparison to adulthood. They are like looking in a mirror compared to seeing a person face to face. They are like partial knowledge in comparison to complete and total knowledge. Paul's imagery is so rich. Paul in no way wishes to devalue the gifts, as chapter 14 will demonstrate. In fact, he argues for their necessity and in the present and urges for their proper use. But what he wants the church to pursue above all all else is that which will never fade, that which will never come to an end. Love. Paul's concluding sentence in verse 13 about three things remaining, faith, hope and love. But love being the greatest highlights the fact that love is equally necessary for the present as well as for the future. But unlike its companions, faith and hope, it will abide into all eternity. It is understandable why this passage is so well-loved. It is pure and aspirational. It offers a framework for what true and authentic love might look like. It teaches us that love is not a gift. Sorry, that love is a gift. But rather, it is also a way, a way of life, a way of how we are to function, a way of how the gifts in the church are to function. It teaches us that the way of love is the only way for the believer. It teaches us that in our own efforts to authentically love, we will always fall short. It teaches us that we have a God who loves us with patience and kindness and has given us his spirit to equip us with his capacity to love. Can you imagine what our world might look like? What our country would look like? What our state would look like? What our church or our families or our community would look like? If the one word used to describe Christians was love, if the one defining action that described Christians was love, if the one quality or attribute that set Christians apart was love, if our one motivation as Christians was love, if the very heartbeat, foundation, core value, core belief, core practice, core principle, everything that we lived and embraced was love, what might happen? May it not just be a question we ask, but rather may it be a way of life that we as believers and as a church pursue as if our very lives depend on it. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we pause to consider that you are a loving Heavenly Father that your love has been demonstrated and poured out to us at the cross of Christ. 
that your love is so far-reaching that it knows no bounds, it knows no ends. We thank you that when we look at Jesus, we see your love for all humankind. And as your people, Lord, you call us to mirror that love in the way we interact with both one another and in the way we conduct ourselves in the world. And so this morning, Lord, as we recognise our own frail humanity and we recognise how far we're short of this wonderful vision of what love truly is when empowered by your Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13, we recognise that without your help and without the filling, the ongoing filling of your Holy Spirit, we have no hope of truly realising this way of love that you call us to. So now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, that we might become to be known as a people and as a church that is one of love. We ask this in the name, through the name, and for the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.